Escaped Sapiens. Is it possible to simulate the human brain on a computer? And if so, then what are the downstream implications? In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Steve Ferber, who is a British mathematician and computer scientist who specializes in neural engineering. Steve leads research on Spinnaker, which is an artificial neural network with over 1 million processor cores designed to simulate 1% of the neurons in the human brain. We talk about how neural networks store and process information and how that might relate to the processing of thoughts and memories in our own brains. We discuss the progress that has already been made in the field of neural engineering and where the field might be heading. In particular, when might we see the very first human-level general artificial intelligence, and what are the social, moral, and ethical implications when that day finally arrives? I'm amazed that technology has genuinely come to the point where we're able to start having this discussion, and I had a lot of fun with this conversation. I hope you enjoy. So to start off with, before jumping into Spinnaker and talking about simulating human brains, I have to put out the question, is this something we can do? Can we simulate human brains? So in other words, is, is, are all the thoughts, my consciousness, my emotions, is this something that results from the machine inside my head and something that maybe not tomorrow or, or in the next year, but eventually we should be able to simulate in all of its capacity? In your opinion. Well, I think that's that's a very important and big question to which we do not yet know the answer. So um, I think uh, we can certainly model neurons and we can model very complex systems of neurons on the best estimates of the kind of compute power that would be required to model a whole human brain. We don't have that much compute power available yet, but we're not far away. Um, but in addition to having the compute power, we also need to know a lot of detail about how the brain is wired and organized. And we have some of that knowledge, but it's very partial. Whether if we could build a model of, of the neurons in the brain, wire them together correctly, set everything up, we would end up with a model that behaved just like a human brain or whether there'd still be something important missing. Um, is, a, is a, an area of controversy at the present. But I guess something that you're hoping to uncover eventually on, on long-term horizons. Uh, yes, whether I myself will survive long enough to see that is, <laughs> is, is, is rather doubtful, but I think the trajectory we're on is, is leading towards answering that question. Okay, but so... It's still, it, it may sorry. still be decades away. Uh, we may be decades away from answering that question. So, so tell me about uh, Spinnaker in, in broad strokes. Well, what, what is the project uh, and, and what are you trying to simulate? Spinnaker is um, one example of a neuromorphic computing system. Uh, the, the, there's a very wide range of neuromorphic systems out there uh, from ones that attempt to implement uh, models similar to the neurons in analog electronic circuits through to the Spinnaker end, where basically we're using software uh, to model neurons and synapses, um, but we recognize that brain modeling is a massively parallel compute problem, so we built a massively parallel computer specifically for this application. Uh, the big Spinnaker machine in Manchester has a million ARM mobile uh, phone processor cores in it, and each of those cores can model a few hundred neurons and their associated synapses. Um, and, and the unique feature of Spinnaker is the way those uh, processors are connected uh, because the brain is very highly connected. A typical neuron in the brain has many thousands of inputs for other neurons. 
um, and, and the standard way processors are interconnected in high performance computers, for example, which also sometimes have millions of processors, um, that interconnect uh, uh, infrastructure is not suitable uh, for modeling um, spiking neural networks as found in the brain. Um, because in high performance computing, the interconnects optimize for sending very large amounts of data from one place to another. Whereas what we want in the brain is to spend is to send very small amounts of data from one place to many others. Um, so, so that at its simplest level is the fundamental difference between Spinnaker and a conventional high performance computer. The, the interconnect is in, inherently multicast and optimized for very small packets of data. I, I, this is probably a good time to jump in and ask, what is a sp spiking neural network? How does it so, function? Why, why is it, how does the information transfer uh, different to in a regular computer, say? Computers are used to model what are called artificial neural networks, which, which form the underpinnings of, of today's AI systems. So you know, if you talk to your mobile phone or you have an Amazon Alexa um, outfit, then the speech recognition process runs on an artificial neural network which in some sense resembles a biological neural network, but it differs in one very fundamental way, that in the artificial network, a neuron sends a value along to the next neurons it's connected to, whereas uh, the biological neural networks communicate principally by spiking. In other words, each neuron, when it sees appropriate inputs, emits an output in the form of a spike, which is a pure electrochemical impulse and the, the size and shape of the spike carries uh, probably no information. Um, all the information is conveyed in which neurons spike and when they spike. Mm -hmm. So um, it's quite a different communication model from a standard computer artificial neural network. And if you, if you want to understand biology, then you've really got to capture that communication mechanism. Mm -hmm. uh, because we believe there's quite a lot of computational power um, inherent in the, in the spatio-temporal patterns of spikes that flow between neurons in the brain. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you have regular computers that are connected or, or cores that are connected to each other uh, directly, and those connections are what's special about this particular setup, but each core is a regular com computer uh, that is simulating, using software, uh, a set of neurons. That's right, yes. I mean, the cores themselves are are ARM microprocessors. Um, ARM processors are in pretty much every smartphone on the planet and many other things as well. Um, we use relatively low power, efficient ARM cores in Spinnaker because the modeling problem is in the class of embarrassingly parallel compute problems. And small cores are generally more efficient um, in doing computation than the, the high performance cores that are typically used in a high performance computer. So we use very large numbers of, of, of small processor cores. But our models are software, so we can change them. If you want to model a, a slightly different neural function, solve a different differential equation, that's just a matter of changing the code. Mm -hmm. And are the connections fixed, or can you also simulate different connections between uh, the different sets of neurons and the different cores? The connections are entirely programmable. Um, oh, okay. So we do the standard computer science thing in Spinnaker of virtualizing the topology 
of the I biological see. system we're trying to model. If you look in the brain, you see very characteristic um, connectivity patterns in the cortex, for example, um, where the connectivity patterns are pretty similar right around the brain from the back of the head where it's doing things such as low-level image processing to the front of the head where it's doing things such as natural language processing and higher-level thinking. Um, but if you go and look at the cerebellum, which is a part of the brain that's involved in, in fine motor control, you see a completely different um, interconnect pattern between the neurons. And indeed, there are many different brain regions with quite different patterns. So on Spinnaker, um, we tackle that problem by virtualizing connectivity. So the mm -hmm. topology of the machine and the topology of the network we model on the machine are completely decoupled. Can I ask, uh, in terms of storing information, there's one aspect about the way that brains work that I'm sort of curious about that I was hoping maybe you have an answer for. When I form memories in my head, I imagine I'm imagining short-term memories as somehow software, but for long-term memories, my imagination was that there might be actual morphology changes and connection changes within the brain. Are you modeling those sort of changes as well in, in, in the programs you're running? Yes, we, we can model all of those uh, characteristics. Um, we don't actually know how your memories are stored. Um, that's, that's one of probably the more reachable um, big questions uh, in neuroscience is you know, wh when you recognize a face, how have you remembered that face? Where in the brain is that information stored? Is it stored in one place or more likely is it highly distributed? Uh, so that there are little sort of fragments of that memory in, in, in various different brain regions. But we really don't know much about how that works. It's kind of a curious question. Do I have a section in my brain now that's dedicated to representing the memory of Steve Ferber now that we've had this conversation? I, th I think there, there is a brain area that, 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 that's recognized as having a big role in, in recognizing faces. Uh, because to humans, recognizing human faces is particularly important. Um, so, so we have evolved a fairly significant chunk of brain um, uh, to try and optimize that process. Um, but even so, so, so we do have some kind of idea as to where the information is likely to be stored, but much less idea about how it's stored. But on Spinnaker, we can, we can model the standard learning mechanism in the neural network, which is when synapses that connect neurons adjust their connection strengths. Uh, in response to new inputs. And we can also model the rewiring, which mm -hmm. um, you mentioned, which I think is quite likely to be uh, fundamental to long-term memory. I see. Um, in the models that, that are currently built, um, there's a real tension between um, being able to remember things quickly and mm -hmm. being able to remember them for a long time. Because remembering things quickly, you know, if you, if you see a cat, you recognize the cat, um, you remember something about it, it just from one view of the cat. Um, but um, so you don't need to see, as did the Google artificial network that first got good at recognizing cats, you don't need to see 10 million cats before you get good at it. Mm -hmm. um, you can see just a few examples and you, and you become good at recognizing cats. Um, so, so the brain is very soft in that sense. Uh, and yet 20 years later, if you had not seen a cat in the meantime, 
you would have no problem recognizing one if you came across your first cat in 20 years. Um, uh, and we don't really have any models of, of neural memory that have mm -hmm. those two properties. They can either do the first or the second, mm -hmm. uh, but not both. But so, so you, with the machine that you're building, you are actually able to construct memories uh, in some sense, whether or not it has both of these properties. Uh, we can we can certainly construct memories that have either of those two properties, um, mm. but but we we share the same problem as any other computer model that combining um, one or few shot learning with long term mm. memory is is still uh, a very challenging area. Can you not uh, just build two separate sections of the brain that are dedicated to either and then? Is there not some uh, method like this that you could go to some route along these lines that you could go down? I, well, uh, how do you connect them together? I mean, I think that's a very interesting question. Um, and there are some models that are beginning to do this. So, so one mm -hmm. model we've looked at um, that was originally um, developed a bit by Sim Bamford during his PhD at Edinburgh um, is, is a model where we use a standard learning algorithm called spike timing dependent plasticity to adjust synaptic weights. And then the weights that end up being strong persist, but the weights that end up being weak, in other words, they're not contributing much to the memory, they get reassigned. So there's synaptic rewiring happening. And that rewiring does endow this mechanism with both short and long-term memory. Uh, but there's, there's long-term and there's decades long term that, that we humans seem to display um, that's still challenging but at least this this model has two different memory time scales i have to ask you uh, when you're talking about waiting in a network what, what do you mean uh, precisely well when, when one neuron emits a spike that spike connects into many other neurons and for each mm -hmm. of those neurons it connects through a process called a synapse which is if you like an input connection and that input connection um, changes its, its, its strength, changes its weight in response to activity. Mm -hmm. um, some of this goes back to uh, very early work by Donald Hebb in the mid-20th century, where Hebb came up with um, the hypothesis that neurons that fire together wire together. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, and uh, this is called Hebbian learning. And many of the neural learning rules are examples of of, of heavy in algorithms. Um, so the synapse adjusts, but if it gets, if it adjusts to a very low weight in response to inputs, then it's not really contributing. And, and mm -hmm. uh, you can argue that biologically it should be dropped and replaced with perhaps another random input. And then you see if that one ends up contributing or not. If it doesn't, you drop it and try and find another mm -hmm. one. So you effectively do a random search for useful inputs. Mm -hmm. Um, now, in terms of how humans do this, um, we don't know, um, but there are, there's some very interesting work on the role of sleep and the suggestion that um, during the day, we store about a day's worth of memories in our hippocampus. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then at night during sleep, uh, the daytime memories are blended with existing memories around the rest of uh, the brain, in particular through the cortex. And this has been established by some quite interesting uh, experiments involving brain imaging devices. So a bunch of um, 
humans were trained on the new task during the day and when they're tested on the task the same day you see a lot of activity around the hippocampus when you train them on the same task the next day what you see is that activity is moved out and, be, and involves mm-hmm. uh, wider cortical regions so in computer mm-hmm. architecture terms the hippocampus uh, appears to act a bit like a one-day cache of memories um, mm-hmm. and, and sleep is the process where uh, one aspect of sleep is a process whereby memories stored during the day in the hippocampus get consolidated across the brain with existing memories. I wonder, I wonder if that's why we dream in some sense. Your, your brain is picking up the, some thoughts that are being transferred over. Or I wonder if there's some play along those lines that's going well, on. Well, again, we know very little about the role of sleep in, in, in brain function. Um, there are many theories around, uh, several quite plausible ones. Um, one theory is that that sleep is important for kind of bringing the brain back into a kind of um, neutral state. So it's a homeostatic process that during the day all the activity kind of pushes the brain. It, it reinforces synapses here and there, which pushes the brain um away from its sort of mean operating state and then in the night um, those distortions are temporary memories which get made permanent uh, but the brain is then restored back into its its sort of stable state ready to face another day so uh, i want to take a little step back so in your explanation of these weightings in the network i have i I have this cartoon of how things work and maybe I could run it back to you and you could tell me whether this is a good way of thinking about things or not. But my my understanding is that our our neurons, they fire on at different times in different places. And in some sense, information is encoded in these firings in in, maybe in a distributed way or maybe in local way, but across our brain, there are these different firings and the neurons will fire depending on on signals coming in from all the different connections to different neurons the, the network of neurons and the this input is in some sense weighted will i account uh, strongly or not so strongly for the connection to that particular uh neuron and the network changes and the, these weightings uh change over time and, and, and with some sort of algorithm that we may not understand uh, but, but more or less, this is the process. This is sort of the mechanism through which information is, is transferred around the brain. Is, is that a useful way of looking at things? I'm trying to translate uh, uh, what you just said into a, into a way that I understand. Yes, uh, to the extent that I understand this, and of course, I'm, I'm not an expert in, in, in brain science. I, I sort of dabble on the edges. Uh, my expertise is in building computers. Um, but as far as I understand it, from uh, my reading and my conversations with neuroscientists, that's that's a reasonable description of what's happening. Um, the, there's still debate about whether um, the encoding is is largely rate encoding, so that all the neuron is telling you is encoded in how fast it's firing, so it spikes repeatedly, and if it's firing quickly, then its inputs are something it's been tuned to particularly strongly, and if it's firing slowly, um, it's less tuned to the current inputs, um, or whether um, there's a much more sophisticated encoding, which I suspect there is, um, whereby the the relative timing of, of, of related neurons carries a lot more information than simply the sum of the individual firing rates of those neurons. And, and there is 
some evidence that that spike timing carries information. Um, uh, John O'Keefe's famous experiments with with place cells in in rat hippocampus um, suggest quite strongly that the signals from those place cells, which are are cells that indicate where the rat is in its current environment, um, they seem to be phase encoded relative to the theta rhythm that um, that, that uh, exists in the hippocampus. And if they're phase encoded, then that suggests that it's the timing of the spike matters, not simply the firing rate. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, these are all relatively open questions uh, in neuroscience today. So, okay. I, I want to understand how you actually start in, because this is a huge project, constructing even a part of the brain. I mean, how so... I guess what I'm curious is how complete is our understanding of the way that neurons network to each other? And, you know, I'm imagining that this is a real black box in terms of how, uh, how meaning is encoded in the, in these spikes. So, so in practical terms, how do you actually begin wiring up this thing and, and, and coding this thing? I understand that you can code, you know, a million neurons, let's say, or a billion neurons. It's a million cores, right? A million processor cores, yes. And that's, that means a billion neurons? Or does it mean less and then some connections? Optimistically, possibly a billion neurons, but realistically, because we're now using rather more detailed models of neurons, um, we can model a few hundred million, which, which is about the scale of a mouse brain, for instance. So the current Spinnaker machine could potentially support a real-time model of the mouse brain. Um, the mouse is a thousand times smaller than the human, but otherwise pretty similar in terms mm-hmm. of its brain. Um, so it's quite an interesting waypoint. You know, insects have brains with a sort of hundred thousand up to a million neurons. Um, mammals sort of start in the in the many millions up to uh, hundred billion in the human. Um, mm-hmm. So the, uh, but these neurons are pretty similar right across the scale. So mm-hmm. um, the way you start is, well, you look at what people have done already. Um, and, and, and always with research, it's a good idea to know what's out there. Um, you look at how computational neuroscience, uh, neuroscientists model bits of the brain in their computational neuroscience experiments. Um, of course, they're, they're conventionally uh, writing these in software, uh, running them on standard computers, possibly big computers. Um, And then you say, well, what can we do in the hardware that will improve the efficiency of those kinds of models? And where are those models reasonably well tied down? And where are they still wide open? And um, they're reasonably well tied down in, in terms of the way that the neuroscientists like to model neurons, although there's still quite a big range of possibilities there. They're much less well tied down in the way that uh, learning is modeled. So in other words, mm-hmm. how synapses adapt to inputs. Um, and, and, and so that suggests that, you know, you want more flexibility in the synapse space than you need in the neuron space. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the reasons we chose using sort of standard microprocessors for supporting the models was because both areas, neurons and synapses, still seem pretty open. And the most flexible tool we have um, in engineering terms is software. 
Mm-hmm. And and what's the thing that's that's best understood? Well, it's the connectivity. And in the brain, although with synaptic rewiring, there are changes in connectivity. They're relatively localized. They're relatively slow. And and therefore, it's not unreasonable to think that the network um, is either static or at most slowly changing. And mm-hmm. therefore, you can effectively put put the, the topology. Um, into hardware um, mm-hmm. where with the expectation it's not going to need to change very often. Of course, if you switch from modeling cortex to modeling cerebellum, it's a complete change. Um, but that's mm-hmm. something you set up at the start of an experiment um, while you're running the model of the cortex or the model of the cerebellum. Um, mm-hmm. The connectivity changes very little, um, mm-hmm. if at all. But so is that something you're doing? You're you're looking at specific regions of the brain and connecting up your models according to how you think that region of the brain is connected. And what yes. are the sort of experiments that you're running? Uh, I, I want to get some... It's very hard for me to picture your, your day-to-day experiments. I, I just don't have a handle on it. So it's so far out of my wheelhouse. I, I'm trying to get a sense of the sort of thing that you're, you're, you're going after. Well, our major, the major focus of our activity over the last few years and at present is in the context of the EU Human Brain Project. So we've been involved in the HBP from the outset, um, but in this final phase of the HBP, which we're now in, uh, a lot of our work is collaborating with neuroscientists in the HBP um, to implement and and support particular uh, regions of the brain in modeling terms on Spinnaker. So we're working with with one group on on cortical models, which we're now extending from a a single area cortical model of about a square millimeter of cortex to a multi-area model. Um, We've also worked on on cerebellar models um, with an Italian group who specialize in that area. So so we don't invent the neuroscience on our own. Um, Mm -hmm. We work with uh, experts in the neuroscience and and they often have data um, that can be used to tell if the model is working you know, appropriately. So uh, the current state with our cortical model is that it it reproduces the biologically observed firing rates um, in all the different cortical layers that are modelled. Um, so in that sense, there's there's biological data which says yes, this model is doing something sensible. Um, but at this stage, um, that's all it does. It sits there and quivers at about the right rate and different rates in different parts. Um, the next big challenge is, is to say, OK, so what's it doing functionally? Um, we've got this fairly well documented um, network topology with, with the various layers that have been observed in the cortex over many decades. Um, the right mix of excitatory and inhibitory neurons, the right kind of statistical connectivity. Um, most data on how the brain is connected is statistical. You know, so you, you, you can't mm-hmm. get a detailed wiring diagram with each of the uh, 10 to the 15 or 16 synapses shown clearly on the wiring diagram. What you can say is that neurons of this type here connect to about five percent of the neurons in the adjacent bunch mm-hmm. um, and, and we build the model by effectively choosing a random five percent which mm-hmm. may well be the way the biology works 
um, because there is nothing like enough information in human DNA to specify mm -hmm. every connection in the brain. Um, so it seems likely to me that the DNA says, you know, this bunch of neurons here, you grow projections over there and connect to about five or ten percent of what you find there. And and then when it when you when it's switched on when it starts working, you know, make the make some changes, right? see if you can fiddle around with the connections to improve things a bit but um i see so so in other words the the neuroscientists give you some model for how they think through imaging studies whatever the connectivity is set up what percentage of neurons are connected to each other and then they'll also give you some input and the sort of output they get and you simulate that and see if you can match uh what the real brain is doing uh, so that that's yeah. that's sort of the model oh that's really okay that's 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 pretty much exactly what we have been doing to date um in in the brain modeling i mean we have we have other lines of research which are building spiking neural networks for robotic control where we have embodiment where the emphasis is on function rather than accurate replication of biology and and, and, mm -hmm. and converging those two threads is is potentially very interesting in the future but what we'd really like to get to with these models is yes they reproduce the data now we have a model that's much easier to probe than the biology uh, can we use that model to begin to understand function mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i think can, can i can i ask it sorry sorry i just interrupted you um can, can i ask why why did you start all the way uh, at a human brain why not go and start at like a spider's brain or knots or whatever they have why didn't you start with something that you know because the question was originally where do you even begin it, it seems like such a huge project to start with a really complex organism like a human brain uh have have there been people that looked at uh, you know butterflies or bees or uh, oh, yes. some other Yes, uh, the, the, there is research on almost every animal you can think of. Um, mm -hmm. Somebody is paying attention to the peculiarities of, of, of their brain. And, and it's a valid question as, as, as um, to why to go up to scale. I mean, the Human Brain Project itself has quite a lot of work on mouse brain um, mm -hmm. as, as an obvious stepping stone, three orders of magnitude down the scale. Mm -hmm. um, and... and um, I don't think we currently have any activity on insect brains, but we've certainly talked to people with interest there. I think if you go all the way down to um, very simple creatures, such as C. elegans, which has been pretty much fully documented in terms of its brain structure, the problem there is the neural circuits are very simple. And, and for a lot of their function, um, they depend on the fact that they're highly integrated with the body. Um, mm -hmm. So quite a lot of what's going on is to do with non-neural stuff. Um, I see. And, and uh, but even there, um, we can't claim that we fully understand how C. elegans works. Uh, um, we can build models that reproduce some of its characteristics, um, but building a model that that fully replicates all of C. elegans' activities is still challenging. Um, mm -hmm. Insect brains um, are significantly more sophisticated. I think C. elegans is 300 plus neurons. Insect brains are a thousand times bigger than that. Um, of course, they vary uh, from mm -hmm. insect to insect. A Drosophila is around 100,000. Uh, in fact, of course, it 
like most insects, it has two life phases. Um, mm -hmm. It it starts off as some some kind of grub, I think. I guess I don't know. <laughs> and 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 that grub has you know one brain, and and mm -hmm. then it um, uh, develops into the fly form where it needs different brains and bits of the grub brain that aren't the larva. That's probably the right word. Uh, bits of the larva brain that aren't useful when you're a fly get absorbed. New bits of mm -hmm. brain develop. I mean, the developmental stuff is um, equally formidably complicated. Um, I guess the reason why I was interested in asking the question, question is that uh, I imagine when you look at different humans, uh, very locally, their brains are probably quite different in terms of the geometry of the object. Whereas I imagine when you look at C. elegans that all of the, the network is the same across all of the different, uh, you know, any C. elegans you pick up, I imagined the network would be identical across two different individuals. That is that not may, the case? That probably is right for C. elegans. I mean, again, I'm, I'm, this is getting a bit beyond the borders of my expertise. Um, but the fact that the full network has been documented suggests that it um, changes very little, if at all, from one C. elegans to the next. Um, mm -hmm. I, I suspect that's less true of insect brains. Um, there probably is a bit of variability from one insect to the next, uh, depending on its genetic heritage. Um, but even at the human level, uh, Yes, in the fine detail, of course, there's a great deal of variability. Uh, but in the in the top level structure, we're all very similar. Hmm. I, mean, there I have to. Sorry, go on. I'm going to say there are there are not gross differences between the brains of one human to the next. There are, of course, abnormalities um, hmm. and differences in size. Um, Though the correlation between brain size and, and your intellectual capability seems very weak, if if at all, um, you know, women I think have brains which are typically about ten percent smaller than men's in terms of weight and neuron count. But um, as far as one can tell, it makes no difference to the to the brain's capabilities. Mm -hmm. Or maybe the connections are shorter, so they're quicker. <laughs> well, uh, that of course is is is. Yeah, I'm not sure how much that applies on human scales, but certainly, um, if you look at the speed at which birds respond to stimuli and opportunities and so on, they're obviously thinking on a time scale which is something like ten times faster than humans, if not more. I wonder if their experience is they also live 10 times longer. I mean, they have 10 times the thoughts in that case, right? Uh, yes, uh, since we don't really understand what it means to be a human having thoughts, it's even harder <laughs> to imagine what it means to be a bird having thoughts. But uh, Sorry, I'll try to ask some questions that we can actually nail down on some science <laughs> but, uh, rather than speculation. But okay, well, uh, th let me ask you something really simple then. How long does it take to build a computer with a you know a million cores well it took us a very long time but but there are various reasons for that um uh, you know we're an academic research group um trying to do this on a shoestring um mm -hmm. so it took us we started in earnest i mean the the, the planning started at about 2000 um the construction of the machine started in earnest in 2005 
it took about five years to design the chip and we had the spinnaker chips in 2011. Um, and, and then we could build boards and we could assemble larger machines. Um, but we didn't actually rush to the million core, even though that was our ultimate objective that took. Uh, it was 2018, November, when we had the full million core machine running. We'd had half a million cores from 2016. And it mm -hmm. was clear that the half million core machine was more than enough to keep all of our users happy. Nobody worked out how to use the whole half million core machine. So we didn't feel that expanding it to the full million cores was a priority. What was more important um, was learning how to make it reliable. Because the mm -hmm. problem with machines of that scale um, is that they are never perfect. Um, mm -hmm. And, and um, we had to learn how to cope with the fact that on each of the 1,200 printed circuit boards that um, that machine comprises, um, there would be different faults. And we'd have mm -hmm. to have mechanisms for tracking them down and, and making sure that the software knew where they were and could work around them. Um, mm -hmm. So so ultimately, the current machine functions very reliably, but that reliability is a function of, of detailed hardware analysis, testing, um, and software understanding um, the individual board's capabilities and working around any deficiencies on a board. This is not to say that, that, that you know, there are hundreds of deficiencies, but, but the sort of failures are at the sort of 1% level. Um, mm -hmm. But if you carelessly map a problem onto a part of the machine that includes a 1% failure, then you're going to have strange bugs. Mm -hmm. Can I ask, uh, how, much is, how much power does this thing draw? The, the full million core machine, if you could get all million cores working hard at the same time, would draw um, around a hundred kilowatts. Well, that's not that's not that much. That's what that's like a thousand light lobes or something. That's a thousand watts, sorry. <laughs> light lobes or something like this. Oh, you got like a sixty watt light globe? Only if it's an old-fashioned filament light globe. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> if you have a proper modern LED light globe, then uh, it's more like ten thousand of those. <clears throat> hmm. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm thinking in, the, but uh, okay. So, um, all right. So, uh, one thing I wanted to know is at, at the level of so you said you can uh, model a certain number of neurons, and I'm wondering at what level do you model these neurons? Obviously, you're not modeling you know organelles inside cells and this sort of thing. What does it mean to model a neuron? And and when you count those neurons, are you also counting a neuron plus all of its connections? Or what do you mean by the... You said you've got 1% of the human brain mapped out or oh, in, in raw numbers of, of neurons. Well, yes, that was our original target. I would say now we're more like one mouse brain, which is 0.1% of the human brain. And that's assuming that it can be modeled with uh, relatively simple neuron models. So mm -hmm. by relatively simple, what, what I mean is we tend to use what are called point neuron models, where all the three-dimensional physiology of the biological neuron is kind of abstracted away. And the neuron is viewed as a point in space and all the inputs come into that point they're all modulated by their individual synaptic connections. So we do have um, 
uh, maybe a thousand, ten thousand synapses on each neuron. Each synapse has different um, parameters and characteristics. Um, but they all feed into this one consolidated neuron and then that on the basis of those inputs decides when to spike. Now the point neuron model is widely used in computational neuroscience. It's, it's very popular um, and, and there are varying degrees of sophistication in the dynamics. So the simplest dynamics is what's called the leaky integrate and fire neuron, um, which basically is, electrically is like a capacitor. Every input that comes in, um, if it's an excitatory input, pumps the capacitor voltage up a bit. If it's inhibitory, it pumps it down a bit. Um, over time, the voltage on the capacitance leaks away back to some resting state, but if enough inputs come and pump it up enough, it'll pass some threshold and then make its own spike that goes out to mm -hmm. all its connections. But there are more sophisticated models. Um, one point neuron model we like is uh, due to Eugene Izikiewicz, um, who's a computational neuroscientist in, in Southern California. And, and this model is based on the mathematics of uh, bifurcating dynamical systems. Um, so it's quite a mathematical model. It's a couple pair of differential equations and they have this bifurcating property, which means they get to a sort of critical point and at that critical point, the dynamics can go one way, which is a spike or the other way, which is not a spike. Um, so, and, and this model has the attraction that it can replicate all the various different firing patterns observed in cortical neurons. So there's some sense in which this bit of mathematics seems to capture the essence of what it is for a biological neuron to spike or not to spike. So we mm -hmm. like that model, uh, but there are other more sophisticated models. Um, we're not the right machine if you really want to model um, the neuron in all its biological detail with many compartments and, and, and different physical structures. For that, you probably want a conventional supercomputer, which is the kind of work that they do in the Blue Brain Project at EPFL. Uh, and, and, but we're not, we're kind of the simple end of the neural modeling. We are beginning to look at um, a process called dendritic computation, where different groups of inputs act in cohort mm -hmm. and, and then eventually sum together into the central point. So there's a bit of nonlinear processing going out at various different branches of the inputs. Um, we are beginning to look at that, but, but basically we're at the simple end. I guess the question I'm interested in is if you really want to simulate efficiently uh, everything that's going on in a human brain, what level do you need to, you know, what level of abstraction is important? Because, you know, when we're looking at computers, you have, I suppose you start off with transistors, then you build up, uh, you know, logic gates and then flip flops and adders and eventually ALUs and memory and this sort of thing. I, I want to understand, you know, is there an analogy, as an analogy, where did uh, neurons sit in sort of uh, that, that stream of abstraction? And, and is there some indication from the early work that you've done that maybe uh, later on, as, as our knowledge develops, we'll be able to more efficiently model, not just at the neuron level, but at some higher level of abstraction? That's an excellent question. Um, and of course, if you're talking about computer architecture, then there are very nicely defined levels of hierarchy 
Um, and they have been very deliberately designed in by human engineers uh, to make it possible to think about everything that's happening from the quantum mechanics of the individual transistor um, to the operating system running on your PC. Okay. Um, and to have those things work incredibly reliably um, mm. relies because because the human brain can only sort of take on board so much complexity at once. Um, we have to basically make each step up that hierarchy very clean and simple. Now, biology does not operate under the same constraint. Uh, so biology has no particular interest in being understandable by humans, um, and and and. Um, it does a lot of what we would call in computer engineering terms hacking, i.e. Mm -hmm. it uses a lot of dirty shortcuts uh, to get something mm -hmm. that kind of works the way you need it to work without worrying too much about whether it's a clean abstraction or whether the next engineer who comes along will be able to understand it. Um, so what's, you know, if, if you look at an individual neuron, it's an incredibly complex biological process. Um, it certainly has features which are to do with the fact that it's evolved, uh, that it's grown from a stem cell at some point, um, that it has to find energy to perform its function. It probably even has to have some mechanisms to repair itself if something breaks. It's certainly got lots of homeostatic mechanisms that keep it operating at some sweet spot. Um, how much of this is fundamental to its role as an information processing component and how much of it is is artifactual to that function but very relevant to all these other things all these other problems the neuron has to solve um, and and of course the answer is we don't know how much we can abstract away before we've thrown away something that's critical um, and, and um, i'd love to know the answer to that uh, a lot of people would love to know it but to progress to your, to your next level in the question, um, might we be able to raise the level of abstraction? I think if we could understand um, the function of the cortical microcircuit, for instance, then we could, instead of implementing that microcircuit as you know, about 10,000 individual point neurons, we could replicate it as a piece of software replicating that function. That would raise mm -hmm. the abstraction, well, four orders of magnitude. Um, yeah. How much below the individual neuron we need to go is another good question. Certainly the synapse is important, and each neuron has many thousands of them. What's happening in the synapse um, is fundamental to how the neuron learns to it learns the statistics of the inputs it's seeing, which is, in some sense, almost certainly what it's doing, is it's exposed to inputs and... It, it, and the population of neurons um, all are exposed to this big space of inputs and collectively between them, they each pick off important parts of that input space against each, speaking statistically so that collectively they capture the information that they see in that input. And if, if, mm. if this is input from the eyes, then we know that, for example, um, most of the things we see in the real world are either horizontal or vertical. Okay, and so the eye has, you know, far, the, the cortex which processes input from the eye um, is far better at uh, judging things which are largely vertical or horizontal than it is at looking at things which are at funny angles. 
mm-hmm. um, which is why some of these distorted runes are so difficult to understand. You know, these runes that are being deliberately built mm-hmm. to confuse mm-hmm. the senses, where if you walk to one side, you look three foot tall, you walk to the other side, you look mm-hmm. 12 foot tall. Yeah. And that's all exploiting the way the brain has learned to interpret information. Again, we know it works. We don't know how it works. I guess one of the reasons why I'm curious to know the answer to this question is, you know, if, if someone has high, you know, if they've gone for a run and their blood is pumping or they're, they're well oxygenated or they've taken a few too many drinks or if, you know, they're on drugs or something like that, their, their mental <laughs> output does change. And so it's a curious question to ask, you know, at what level of abstraction do you need to go to generate consciousness, uh, for example, I, I mean, if you were a betting man, would you would you put that at the level of the neurons and the synapses, or where where would you place your cards down if you if you had to? Well, again, where does consciousness come from is one of the very very biggest questions, <laughs> and and in the human brain project, I'm sorry, <laughs> in the human brain project, there have been attempts to begin to answer that. Uh, in fact, the Human Brain Project hosted a conference on consciousness in Barcelona a year or two back, probably two years now, um, since very few conferences have happened in the last year, except virtually. Um, but if you look at the way they're addressing that question, um, the observation is that you know the, the brain has is sometimes asleep and it's sometimes mm-hmm. awake, and awake is being conscious. So what's the difference in brain activity between the wake the wake brain and the sleeping brain. Um, mm. And that, I think, is, is, is reasonably tractable from where we are now as, as, as a scientific question. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if when you talk about consciousness, you mean this sense of who I am, the self-awareness, where I sit in the world, uh, that's a very, very big question. Um, and you'll find there are debates. So um, back in the 90s, Roger Penrose, who's a very well-respected mm-hmm. English mathematician, uh, wrote a book with the title The Emperor's New Mind, where he basically um, postulated, well, proved, claimed to prove that um, no computer could emulate all the functionality of the human brain because mm-hmm. um, there, were, there were clearly things the human brain could do that were impossible for a Turing machine, which is you know, the fundamental theoretical abstraction that underpins all modern computers. Um, and and, and um, so he, you know, he appealed, he said there must be some other physical process at work, and he suggested that you know, quantum um, functions in, in the microtubules, in the neurons, might have something to do with it. That was just a, a postulate. Um, I don't think he would claim that was established. Um, but if you talk to neuroscientists, um, very few neuroscientists buy that theory. The great mm-hmm. majority of neuroscientists believe that if you have a sufficiently accurate model of the biological neuron and you assemble the right system of these on the right scale, that consciousness will prove to be an emergent characteristic of that system. Now, I'm probably in in the neuroscientist camp on this. Um, I will probably never know, um, but I, I suspect it's an immersion property, and, and and that's because um, 
yes, computers at the at the bottom level do very simple things very fast. I mean, the magic of a computer is mm-hmm. not what it can do, but how fast it can do it. And and everything we're seeing, you know, watching each other on a screen here, is the magic of incredibly simple operations proceeding at a at a terrifying rate um, that we understand. But those computers can be used to support models. And mm-hmm. the, the neuroscience models that we talk about are models. We, we've, we've built models of stochastic neural networks that can solve constraint satisfaction problems, which are in principle uncomputable, right? Um, mm-hmm. Now, they don't solve them all the time, right? They're a bit unreliable. Um, and so computer science doesn't really like them. Um, but But... My point there is that it's not the computer that's solving the problem, it's the model. And I mm-hmm. suspect that will that may be an important aspect of when we build very large models of neural systems and they begin to display characteristics of consciousness. They might, they might not. Um, but if they do, there will be no sense in which the underlying computer is conscious. That mm-hmm. consciousness will exist at several levels of abstraction above the machine. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think this makes sense. It, it does. Well, to me, it, it sort of does. It, it, it's sort of like asking, does water exist? Because we know really water is made up of atoms and those are made up of protons and so on. And water really only exists at a certain level of abstraction. Maybe consciousness is the same. Uh, you know, it's 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 real in the same sense that water is real. Perhaps that's a nice analogy. But I, I guess since since I'm asking you questions that are maybe impossible to answer, <laughs> let me go one step further and ask you something a little bit stronger. Then, do you think this the second notion of consciousness that you mentioned this you know this conscious experience? Do you think maybe it's a byproduct of general intelligence? You know, you, you, go, you go ahead and you, you build uh, some machine, whatever the architecture is, that is generally intelligent, that passes the Turing test and does it, everything uh, you would want of the machine. Do you think conscious experience may always be emergent if, if, you're, if you're aiming for general intelligence? I think I would tend to put it the other way around. I think consciousness is probably a requirement for human-like general intelligence. Um, if the machine is not aware of itself, it can probably emulate a number of human functions, but ultimately it won't pass the Turing test. Uh, I mean, whether or not the actual Turing test is the right test here is is a moot point, I think. Um, But it's very interesting that still no computer has convincingly passed the Turing test in its original form, as, you know, Turing posed this test in 1950. Two years after the first stored program computer ran its first program in Manchester on, on Midsummer's Day, nineteen forty-eight. Right, two years. It's too that, early for you to have had a part in that. I was, I was not born then. No, um, in Manchester, but I was. Well, I was. I was. A, I was a concept in Manchester rather than. <laughs> anyway, enough. Um, yeah. So so Turing wrote that paper in Manchester when he came to use the baby machine that. Freddie Williams and Tom Kilburn have put together. Um, and, and two years into, if you like, the history of the modern computer, he was postulating 
this test. And, and he reckoned by the end of the 20th century, computers would pass his test. All they needed, compared with the Manchester Baby Machine, was more memory. And he reckoned a gigabyte would be about enough to pretend to be human, convincingly. Um, and, and the Manchester Baby had 128 bytes of memory, so that was a fair extrapolation. And indeed, it was about the end of the 20th century when computers had around a gigabyte of main memory but they wouldn't pass his test. They'd also be a million times more powerful than the baby, but they wouldn't pass his mm. test. And I think this is because Turing fundamentally viewed intelligence as logic. Mm -hmm. And I think um, we now know that intelligence, I mean, logic is a component of it, but intelligence in general is much broader than logic. And... Mm -hmm. um, and indeed, one of my objections to, to, to Penrose's argument in The Emperor's New Mind is that if you start off with a Turing machine, then you essentially have a perfect machine that never makes mistakes. And, mm. and uh, it's clear that the human brain is not one of those, right? Um, the human brain makes mistakes at the most fundamental level all the time. Um, mm -hmm. and, 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 and that means it's something other than a Turing mm -hmm. machine. Um, it's pretty good though because it often is functioning with a lack of information so in some sense an uh, an open an open system yeah oh yes no no i yeah. mean I, that the fact it makes mistakes was not to decry its capabilities i mean its capabilities are way beyond anything we know how to make um but but um the the, the fact that we can make mistakes at a, at a very simple level um, distances us mm. from the Turing machine process. We're something other than that. Um, mm. But that doesn't mean we can't model that other thing on the Turing machine, right? I mean, mm -hmm. um, we, we do lots of models that effectively have random components. Uh, Spinnaker is a non-deterministic machine, um, mm. fundamentally in, in, in some respects. So at the risk of uh, pushing us further in the direction of philosophy, I, I promise we'll come back <laughs> <laughs> to the machine. I'm wondering, let's say, for example, um, you were able to, uh, let's say you focused on generating a mouse, you know, simulating uh, a mouse brain and, and you worked you worked out how to uh, interface that mouse with the rest of the world, you know, say with a machine or, you know, a little robotic body or something. Should we think of that as being alive then? Does this change the way we should think about what is alive and what's not alive? Or does that change the the game a little bit in, in, in those philosophical regards? I think, I think the possibility exists that, that that question will have to be addressed at some point. But um, that um, synthetic systems that display sufficient self-awareness even if it's at the level of a relatively simple animal um, that raises the issue as to whether there should then be rights associated with that capability um, and I, I, I certainly wouldn't rule that out um, mm -hmm. but we're nowhere near mm -hmm. uh, um, really having to face that question at present mm. In terms of where we are, what are some of the key outputs that have come out of the Spinnaker project? Oh, and the Human Brain project, actually, uh, more generally. Um, 
the Human Brain Project has produced quite a wide range of results. It's a very big project. I mean, it's a, <laughs> you know, it's a, it was a notional billion euro ten year project at the outset, and it's working right across the board from from brain medicine um, through to brain inspired computing. Um, so there are outputs right across the board, and and and, and there is a a web page on the Human Brain Project website that kind of lists some of its major contributions. Um, and, and, the, and they include um, mechanisms such as, as the virtual brain, which has been used to model um, problems such as epilepsy and made mm-hmm. a, a very important contributions in that area. Um, some of the work in, in the medical space of just trying to find... Um, acceptable ways to process data related to brain disease across multiple hospitals. You know, the, the patient confidentiality issues are supreme in the, so, so the data cannot leave the hospital, but somehow you have to extract something from that data that you can then compare with data from other hospitals because each individual hospital has too small a data set for patterns to become visible. But if you can see across 10 or 20 or 30 hospitals, you can then see patterns that aren't visible at the local level. Um, So a lot of work's gone into how to do that without in any way breaching patient confidentiality. Um, Mm -hmm. And and, and that has highlighted patterns in in Alzheimer's that haven't been seen before, for instance. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think multiple different variants, but again, I'm I'm way off my territory here. in, in terms of, 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 of what we've done with Spinnaker, um, then some of the more interesting things are, are the cerebellar model I mentioned previously. Um, no, the, well, the cortical model and the cerebellar model, which has just been published, the paper has come out in the last couple of days, um, showing that we can, we can build these models in this machine and um, run them at appropriate speeds um, in ways that are very difficult on conventional computers. Um, so that's real time. The cortical model is certainly real time. I I I don't know the data from the cerebellar model. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sufficiently familiar to know whether that's running with some slowdown or real time. Um, but these are all sort of building components that can subsequently be integrated uh, to build important brain subsystems. Okay, you can you can do important work with with two or three subsystems. You don't need the whole brain before you start getting interesting mm-hmm. insights into interactions mm-hmm. so so uh, you know the spinnaker was the first machine to run the cortical microcircuit model in real time um mm-hmm. we we work closely with the supercomputer folk at, at ulich in germany um and i think they have now got their supercomputer model up to real time as well um there's, mm-hmm. there's i think quite a useful sort of slight competition um uh, between uh, the HPC folk and, and, and Spinnaker um, and, and we're both learning from each other as to how to tweak these models to get them to perform better. Is there some feedback in terms of, uh, are you learning, uh, you know, is there feedback in terms of how you should be designing computers? I mean, are we learning, you know, we can get speed up in you know, the computers we're building, taking techniques from the way the brain functions. Is there anything along those lines that you're uncovering? Yes, I think, I think Spinnaker's 
in its communications infrastructure has got this this sort of brain inspired aspect um and and the current spinnaker machine is now quite old technology uh, we, we've been thinking about it for 20 years and building it for 15 um, and, and within the HBP we have designed a second generation Spinnaker chip and that's been developed in collaboration with TU Dresden um, and that will actually be going to silicon this year and that'll use a much more advanced um, silicon technology and it'll deliver about 10x the functional density and efficiency um, mm -hmm. and, and so that's really going to form a foundation from which we can build uh, probably for the next 10 years um, so that means you're back at the one percent uh well then maybe even beyond that yes maybe uh, because it's 10 times the functional density no i uh, no actually 10 times the number of processors yes so it probably is back at at the one percent but it's got accelerators on it uh, from using spinnaker mm -hmm. one we've worked you know we've identified what are critical functions um mm -hmm. and which things we can most usefully accelerate in hardware so for models which are a good match to the accelerators we've put on spinnaker two we'll be going not 10 times as fast but 100 times as fast um okay. so so um it does depend on the model as to, as, to, as to how much the accelerators will provide direct benefit. Um, but potentially we could see two orders of magnitude improvement. Mm -hmm. When do you think we'll, I keep saying we as though I'm involved. When do you think you'll be at the level where, where you can simulate an entire human brain? What's the time scale do you think uh, well, the human brain simulation? The standard... Um, the standard assumption is that to model a complete human brain, you need a supercomputer around exascale. Okay, and exascale is ten to the eighteen operations a second, and and you know you can see in rough numbers where that comes from. The brain has ten to the eleven neurons, about ten to the fifteen synapses. Um, the synapses are activated at a few hertz on average okay it's very variable but so let's say that's 10 to the 16 synaptic activations per second if you can model a synaptic activation in 100 operations that's 10 to the 18 operations a second i mean that's the basis mm -hmm. and exascale supercomputers are just around the corner um mm -hmm. the latest japanese uh, fugaku machine is Depending on what you're doing, it's somewhere uh, a quarter, a third exascale. Mm -hmm. um, so we're tantalizingly close to exascale now, and, and we will see exascale machines probably within the next five years. Now, mm. they will have supercomputer interconnect architecture, which may mean they're not ideally suited to this brain modeling problem. So they might struggle with that. Um, when will we be able to build a Spinnaker machine? At extra scale, well, that's uh, that question is 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 more about money than technology. Mm -hmm. um, I think I, su I suppose also this is a the machinery itself is quite large. So then the next question is when can you get it down? <laughs> I mean, getting that into the size of a skull. Oh yeah, I mean, it's quite impressive what the brain can do. That's a very very long way off. I mean, I, I, that's what I usually say is, is you know. If you look at the science fiction model of the walking, talking humanoid robot that 
you know, is almost indistinguishable from the flesh and blood human. Um, the kind of brain you need for that, if it's built on our current technology, uh, at the moment would require something the size of an aircraft hangar, um, combined with its own small power station. Um, you know, uh, if Spinnaker is 0.1% of the human brain at 100 kilowatts, that means the full brain is 100 megawatts. Exascale machines are coming out ideally at 30 to 40 megawatts. Um, but tens of megawatts is still, you know, it's it, it's not battery technology. It's a it's yeah. it's small power station, um, and and uh, so fitting that inside the size of the human skull is is uh, still several orders of magnitude to go in terms of efficiency and 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 size. Yeah, it's funny if 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 you asked someone, you know, what materials should you use to build the world's most efficient computer, you probably wouldn't build it out of meat. I mean, <laughs> the brain is impressive in in a number of along a number of different axes, uh, actually. I suppose. Yes. Well, the human brain <laughs> does what it does with about twenty watts, uh, and you know, mm. today's technology that's that's closest to being able to model a brain in real time would be an exascale machine, which we're struggling to get into 20 megawatts so there's a factor mm -hmm. a million if you actually manage to build one of those in, in into a human i doubt they could physically eat enough in a day to keep it powered <laughs> I, I, imagine your regular diet and multiply that by a million <laughs> and, and try and force that down your throat that's uh, <clears throat> it's not going to work is it um no and and so, I mean, I, I don't think we are building brain models in order to build machines that displace the human brain or in some sense substitute for it. And I think the reasons for doing it are very different. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's very unclear from to me that if you could build a walking, talking humanoid robot, that's really what you'd want to do. Um, mm -hmm. that there might be... Um, other forms of embedding intelligence in machines that are more useful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, also, I, I suppose if, if we're going to go back, uh, since this conversation sort of flitters in and out of science, then science fiction and, you know, these fun ideas, I, I, I wanted to ask, um, I'm not, not saying the research you're doing is, is fiction, of course. I'm just saying, you know, when we're talking about whether or not we should think of uh, machines as living. Uh, so... One one thing that you could ask um, in terms of ethical questions is if you could augment our brain. So, so for example, we could make ourselves smarter or you could make, uh, you know, augment an animal so they could talk. You know, there, there are these sort of interesting directions that open up all sorts of ethical concerns that uh, I really haven't touched on or thought of before. Uh, when when you look at say for example Neuralink, is this something that excites you and 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 you think sort of pairs well with your research, or is this uh, th this is not the direction you're actually uh, looking at, right? No, I, I, that's not anything I'm particularly interested in. I mean, I think um, there are more important problems than augmenting the normal brain, mm -hmm. and one quite important problem uh, is repairing the broken brain. Um, mm -hmm. Now, um, at its simplest, we're already doing that, okay? We have cochlear implants, um, mm -hmm. which substitute for, for, for lost hearing. 
and, and, and repair it. We're quite close to being able to do the same for sight. Okay, mm -hmm. but uh, people who, who lost their sight, but if they still have a reasonably functional optic nerve, um, you can build electronics into an artificial eyeball that will send signals down the optic nerve that restores. And, and, and it's already being done at a very limited resolution. Okay. It's, it's, but but um, it seems to me quite conceivable that that, that, that approach of, of medically repairing damage through artificial um, substitutes actually raises very few ethical issues. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and 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 it's quite an important line of research um i think um brain augmentation is always going to be ethically difficult if it involves physical interfacing um of course you know we already have brain augmentation i carry my smartphone with me wherever i go and um and rely on it a great deal for things you know by my uh, my late mother had her whole diary in her head. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what I'm doing tomorrow, um, <laughs> but my phone can. Um, and, and Are you doing more than your mother was? Uh, well, possibly, but she would remember it anyway. Mm. You know, um, mm. uh, the the first point at which uh, we realised that she was having a bit of problem with her memory. Um, she did end up mm -hmm. with, with, with Alzheimer's. And the first sign was when she couldn't remember the Latin name of every plant in her garden. And she had a lot of plants in her garden. Um, yeah. you know, that was a kind of first sign. Now, for me, remembering a Latin name would be unusual. But um, uh, so, so we already treat things like our smartphones and our computers and our laptops and our um, tablets as, as as brain augmentation devices. I think um, mm. we don't realise how much we're doing that, and I don't think we're quite sure about whether it's doing us any harm. So the fact that we don't rely on our own memories anything like as much may actually be damaging our own memories um, through mm. through you know through lack of use. Um, but um, I'm reasonably comfortable with that kind of brain augmentation. Um, mm -hmm. what is, what is key though, is that, uh, diseases of the brain, um, are, are very common and very serious. In fact, uh, part of the original argument for the HBP was that diseases of the brain cost the developed economies more than, um, heart disease, cancer, and diabetes put together. Um, and yet they're largely untreatable. And, and the reason... Mm -hmm the big pharma companies have stopped really investing in drugs for treatment of brain diseases is because they don't have the models. The way big mm -hmm. pharma develops drugs is they understand the problem. They understand um, the series of, of, of biochemical events that leads to the problem. And they design drugs to interrupt that chain, uh, the causal chain. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But if you don't have the basic model, you can't start. I see. So, so the way that this work is going to help conceivably is that you'll have a once you understand the way that the brain works, you'll have a nice model, and then you can see how different chemical impacts will impact 
uh, inputs will impact uh, the function. It's not that you're saying we should build, I don't know, a chip that replaces that part of your brain or something no, like no. this. It's more down to it's de- more down to earth. Once we have the models and we understand how this works, then we can uh, d- develop uh, proper prescriptions for for, for treating uh, what's what's currently untreatable. Yes, we can, we we can think about applying the standard drug development approaches to mm-hmm. and and. and I don't think we need a complete understanding of the brain to make progress down that route. Um, but but um, even partial understanding can help. And this is this is the mm-hmm. more complex diseases of the brain, such as clinical depression and schizophrenia and and, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, uh, I, I'm I don't think we need to know much about the functioning of the brain to understand Alzheimer's, for instance, which I think is basically a sort of uh, a biochemical decomposition of the brain um, mm-hmm. that, that can be looked at purely physiologically. Um, mm-hmm. but, um, but for the more complex diseases, I, again, you know, I'm horribly outside my territory here, but uh, <clears throat> these are things I talk to people about. Um, so, so one of the motivations for trying to understand more about the brain, a big motivation, is is for the treatment of brain diseases, and the other one is for the development of of, of more intelligent computing devices. So AI mm-hmm. has exploded over the last decade due to advances made in the previous decade, uh, but mainstream mm-hmm. AI is 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 already hitting some fairly significant roadblocks. Uh, one of the biggest of which is just the sheer cost of training a state-of-the-art network. I mean, the, um, is it GTP3, which has something like 175 billion variables that need to be tuned um, and takes you know, two weeks in the big data center, um, mm-hmm. burning vast amounts But once of- you've done that training, it's done, no? You, you can then produce... You know, once, once you have that weight system for the network... Oh, yes, you can then replicate it. But, of course, what people want to do is improve it, which means retraining it. Um, mm-hmm. And, and there's, you know, there's, a, there's a hope that a convergence between mainstream AI and brain-inspired computing will lead to much more efficient mechanisms, in particular mechanisms that can be trained with far less data. There are many important problems for which big data is simply not available. Um, and and um, But also just the event-based nature of the brain and brain-inspired computing um, leads to the promise of much more efficient AI systems in the future. So can I ask, so at the moment we have uh, graphics cards and things like this, you know, dedicated hardware, which replaces what used to, I suppose, be done by, uh, you know, we used to do uh, graphics world software originally, as far as I understand things, and now we have dedicated hardware. In the future, is this, do you imagine this is also going to happen with neural networks? You know, every computer will have a neural network chip that does you know, rather than simulating everything by software. Oh, yes. Is, is this the direction? Yes. I mean, it's already happening. Um, if you look at uh, the iPhone, for example, a large part of the CPU area is taken up with a neural network accelerator, which is designed which is designed to run mainstream AI-type neural networks. So it's, it's basically a big multiplier accumulate unit. 
um, because a lot of conventional AI is about computing vector products, uh, scalar products. Mm-hmm. And and um, building very efficient hardware to do that is something that... Um, do you mean matrix products? Um, matrix or scalar. I mean, a scalar product is where you take two rows of numbers and you multiply corresponding oh, okay. pairs and yeah. add them all together. There's an awful lot of that in, in mainstream AI. And, and already big accelerators for that are appearing on smartphone chips. Um, mm-hmm. And... and um, you know, they're even in, in my laptop here, which is running, uh, it's, it's a Mac running the new M1 chip that has a very big neural accelerator on it. Um, very closely related to the equivalent chip in the iPhone. Um, so people are already putting accelerators on uh, for mainstream AI. And as soon as event-based AI is shown to have significant advantages, it'll go the same way. I think there's little doubt about that. Mm. We, the current state of the art is there is no compelling demonstration of the commercial viability of neuromorphic hardware at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. But there's lots of research going into it. I mean, Intel has this research prototype, Loihi chip, which is now out in 100 academic labs around the world, uh, looking to see if the academics can come up with the kind of applications that will make this chip commercially viable. Um, mm-hmm. at the moment it's not it's not a commercial product it's a research prototype but you can see the way the thinking is going there are several startups now producing neuromorphic silicon for commercial application as well so we aren't there mm. but but um, a lot of people are putting significant resource into this now what what's the driving force of energy consumption I imagine yes I mean I think particularly doing very efficient inference, at the edge um so edge computing where where power resources are very limited um is is an area where neuromorphic systems may uh, offer a big payoff um mm. the at the moment most ai systems have a fairly strong separation between training and inference um mm-hmm. training is the expensive thing you do in the data center and inference is the rather cheaper thing you can do at the point of delivery. But that hard boundary is going to weaken. Um, mm-hmm. there, there are going to be needs for systems that continue to learn online. Um, mm-hmm. And that's very difficult with the current algorithms. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose uh, now that we want self-driving cars, as as the environment shifts, you know, you as roads change, as, as signs change, I, I suppose this is the sort of shifting environment that's going to drive uh, this sort of development yes. commercially. Yeah, I mean, they're, 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 for commercial suppliers, of course, there's the very scary question is what guarantees can you give on a system that's continuing to adapt itself in use? Um, you know, you, the, the manufacturing model is you like to say, we know what this thing does, we then mass produce it and you get what it does. <laughs> Uh, we may have online updates, okay? That's already happening mm-hmm. increasingly in cars, but the online updates are extensively tested before they're sent out. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, a world in which individual cars learn on the move and share their new experience with other cars, either through a central network or just as they pass them in the street, um, 
that's mm-hmm. quite a, a scary scenario in terms of liability. Mm-hmm. Or your your car gets updated every time you recharge or something. The uh, I, can I ask? Are you someone who's? Do you have a? Do Do you think general artificial? In, I know this is. Uh, you know, we're breaking away further and further from the actual research you're doing. But do you think uh, general intelligence is something we should be scared of? Is is, is artificial intelligence, you know, people like Elon Musk um, say it's something we should be really cautious of. Do, do you hold these same sort of views? Nothing like as strongly. I mean, I think um, artificial general intelligence has got strongly associated with a process that's called the singularity. Um, which is the process as well one once computer intelligence passes a certain critical point it'll start reinventing itself so fast that it'll run away and a singularity mathematically goes to infinity at that point um i don't think intelligence is that kind of parameter i don't think it's something that you can amplify and nor do i think it's a simple single parameter i think there are many forms of human intelligence it's multi-dimensional and the usual um, slightly tongue-in-cheek point I, I make here is that one particular form of human intelligence involves a particular skill at kicking spherical objects into the back of nets. Indeed, judging by today's society, it's the form of human intelligence which is most valued by human society. Um, uh, but it's very different from the sort of human intelligence that's required to uh, prove a new mathematical theorem. Um, or or create mm-hmm. a new work of art, um, and and so I think human intelligence has all those dimensions. I'm sadly lacking in the kicking the football one, um, but um, they're all there, and, and and therefore I don't think you can simply amplify it. In the so so I view myself as a singularity skeptic, and and therefore mm-hmm. I think the appearance of terrifying levels of artificial intelligence is, is, is much further away than the singularity hypothesis suggests. Now, yeah. what I suppose one reason... Oh, I was going to say go one on. thing that, that, of course, is a concern, even where we are now, is the increasing use of AI in, in for example, weapon systems. Um, mm-hmm. The use in cars is, is somewhat worrying. Um, you know, Tesla <laughs> is very... You'll run over someone to save the uh, passengers or something uh, well, along these lines. something like that. I mean, Tesla is certainly doing the uh, high-risk experiments in this space at the moment um, with, with some very interesting, uh, unfortunate outcomes and uh, quite rare, but... Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not aware. What, what, what's happening? Well, these, the, the, the Tesla that was in self-driving mode and, and, and couldn't differentiate between a blank sky and... A white painted side of a large lorry, and therefore, I and therefore see. <laughs> headed straight into it at high speed, killing all its occupants. Um, okay, I hadn't heard of been that. been three or four well documented um, mm-hmm. accidents with with autonomous vehicles, uh, but autonomous. I suppose you have to normalise that against uh, what happens with humans behind oh, the wheel. Right? No, absolutely, you do, and 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 this is a very important point that um, I'm actually very much in favor of autonomous drivers because I think uh, autonomous vehicles because I think the objective of getting of reducing road accidents significantly is achievable I'm not sure we're there yet and I don't know how far the AI has to move towards strong AI before we'll get there 
Um, but but mm -hmm. certainly I don't think humans are particularly good drivers. Although I think a human driver is involved in a fatal accident once every hundred million miles. So it's quite mm. quite high reliability, actually. Um, mm. I, the, the, that's a statistic I've, I've picked up somewhere. I don't know how accurate it is. But but using AI in weapons is, is a much more imminent threat, mm -hmm. I think. And, mm -hmm. and target selection. And, and yeah, well, all aspects of, uh, of autonomous weapons. And, and there are international movements to try and ban AI in weapons. Um, of course, there have been autonomous weapons for a long time. The, the classic nasty is the anti-personnel mine, uh, mm -hmm. which is a weapon that decides when to blow up on the basis of fairly yeah. simple inputs. But even so, um, but look at the difficulty the world has had since the introduction of anti-personnel mines with clearing them up. After this, there's another nice example, which is um, in Australia. They've got this um, infestation of crown of thorn starfish, which are killing the reef. And as far as I know, now they're they're creating robots that swim around in the ocean and they target uh, crown of thorn starfish specifically and inject poison into them. And I, as far as I know, that that uh, decision is still, you know, the robot will identify and then the human presses yes or no. But I think they're at the stage now where they're, they're 90 or 100, you know, close to 100% accuracy on their identification. I'm, I'm not sure whether they're going to turn on uh, uh, the system such that the artificial intelligence takes over the human decision. But that, that, that's uh, something that's happening right now. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, yes, I think autonomous weapons against starfish concern me slightly less than autonomous weapons against <laughs> against human targets and one one of the objections to the use of ai in taking over the control of autonomous weapons is that it, it's not good enough um mm -hmm. so so ai is still some way short of human capabilities when it comes to being confident that the target is the right one um mm -hmm. but uh, the, the the big ethical issues around that space that uh, um. Hmm. The one thing that worries me about this idea of the singularity is that you know humans are constrained by evolution. The fact and the fact that we have to be born, you know, you know, and we have a certain amount of energy consumption. You know, I can't eat billions of burgers per day to to fuel a larger brain, for example. Whereas you could design a, a machine that doesn't have any of these uh, constraints, right? That, that's the direction that sort of worries me. You, you can de design an intelligence that just doesn't have the same limitations that a human body uh, gives a brain. That's certainly true, yes. Um, and, and indeed, in some sense, we already have, okay? So, so my computer can... <laughs> add 10 digit numbers together at the rate of tens of billions a second. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, it takes me quite a number of seconds to add one 10 digit number to another. Um, so in that sense, yeah. you know, my computer's already well exceeded my intelligence when it comes to adding numbers up. It doesn't particularly worry me. Um, uh, <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, it's actually quite useful. Um, mm -hmm. So at what point does it become worrying? Um, mm. it, it's quite an interesting question. Um, mm. I mean, I think a lot of people would be quite frightened when computers start painting better pictures than artists can and creating better music than musicians can. And 
in fact, I mentioned earlier... Re removing all the jobs. ...that you know, computers have singularly failed to pass the original Turing test. But there is a music equivalent to a Turing test, which they have already passed. So there, there are mm -hmm. tests where humans and computers generate new pieces of music. And typical audiences cannot tell which was generated by a human and which by a computer. I'll start to get even more worried when they do it with movies. I think this is a good place to, to wrap up the conversation. So I wanted to ask you uh, just uh, sort of the future of where Spinnaker is going. So you mentioned that there's this new hardware that's coming in. What, what's, the, what's the goal now that you have this? When, when did you say that was? 2027? No, the new, the new hardware has been designed over the last five or six years and is, it, it will be fabricated this year. Um, mm -hmm. So, so Spinnaker Two will come into existence before the end of this year, and and okay. will then uh, be used in mach machines of increasing scale over the next year or two, um, mm -hmm. including some that exceed the scale of the current Spinnaker One machine. Mm -hmm. So, um, a, a lot of that activity is 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 currently being um, led by TU Dresden, um, with whom we've collaborated on the design. Um, but they've also got uh, uh, quite an impressive lineup of industry interest in using this technology for a range of applications. So um, as far as the Spinnaker program is concerned, Spinnaker 2 is the next platform to build on what we've done in the last 20 years. And uh, whether it'll keep going for another 20 years remains to be seen. But whether I'll see it <laughs> is also questionable. But uh, there we go. It's really exciting when industry starts getting involved because then I imagine things will start to move quickly in the in the uh, space. But no, I, I'm I'm hoping that in in 20 years the program's still going strong, and and that maybe in 20 or 40 years we'll see entire uh, brain simulations. That would be really exciting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to yeah, that. Yeah, that would be very interesting. But there's still a great deal to learn and uh, a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Escaped sapiens.